Well, welcome to this worship service from First Baptist Church in Rock Hill. I'm Pastor Steve Hogg, and so excited you've joined us. Recently on Sundays here, I preached a two-part series from Old Testament characters titled Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders. And today you're going to hear the first of those two sermons from a man about a man named Eli and some lessons we can learn from him. So grab your Bible and open it to the Old Testament book of First Samuel and, and ask God to speak to you so that you can learn. All right, here's this guy and he had some flaws and I don't want those. So God, uh, show me how to do things better than he did them. That's my challenge to you right now. Let's pray, and then you'll hear the sermon preached live on campus here at First Baptist a few weeks ago. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together online right now. Opening your word, we invite you, O Holy Spirit, to speak to our hearts and our minds and to to show us changes we need to make, things we need to do differently, to encourage us, to convict us. Oh God, I thank you for each man, each woman, each teenager, each child who is listening and watching right now. And I pray your hand of blessing will be on them as you touch their lives and speak to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to... Spend the first of two Sundays looking at some lessons we can learn for life from flawed leaders. And after singing that song and knowing that in a few moments we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, it's just great to know that God loves us, flaws and all, and uh, the past doesn't have to be the future. But if you're not willing to make changes, the past will determine your future. So we're going to learn some things about that today. Go ahead and be opening your Bible with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And as you can tell, my voice is not normal. I'm battling some head cold issue. <clears throat> and so do the best I can. I appreciate your patience and, and your prayers. Now, normally, I prefer to learn lessons from people who do things the right way. Okay? I prefer to learn from people who are successful. I think you learn more from from people who, who know how to do something than people who don't know how to do something. But having said that, we can learn from failure. In fact, several years ago, John Maxwell, who's written several books on leadership, wrote one book called Failing Forward. Failing Forward. That, that in our failures, if we will learn from them and then make changes, make adjustments, we can move forward in a positive way, in a godly way. And I think that's true. But the key with failure is learning from it and then making changes. If we don't make changes, we haven't really learned anything. If we don't make changes, there's no moving forward in a positive, constructive way. So in our Bible reading plan, we're reading 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, Today and next Sunday, we're going to look at two men in those books of the Old Testament who were leaders, but they were flawed. You could even call them failures. And lift out of their story some lessons God has for us about living for Him, about living life, about moving forward in a healthier way. And, and the first person we're going to look at is a man named Eli. We meet him in chapter 1. Now, Eli 
was the leading priest. Think of him as the high priest of the Jewish nation. He was also a judge like Samson, Deborah, Gideon, which meant he was their national leader. So here's a very important, influential, powerful man, high priest and a judge, their leader uh, of the nation. And um, he was a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. And Aaron was the first high priest. And so through Aaron's descendants came the, the priesthood. And so here's Eli and his sons who are serving as priest, and he's the leading priest. He lives in a place called Shiloh. It's a town in Israel in ancient times where the tabernacle was located. The tabernacle was this large tent it's before they built the temple. And inside that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant that had been built during the days of Moses. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, those two stones, Aaron's rod, and some of the manna God fed them with during the wilderness wandering. So it was a very sacred item located in the tabernacle there in Shiloh. And we first meet Eli in chapter 1 when a woman named Hannah comes to the tabernacle to pray. She doesn't have children. And she desperately wants to be a mother. So she's there to tabernacle praying. And she's so intense in her prayer that she's moving her mouth, her lips, but no words are coming out. You ever prayed or you know, your thoughts? I mean, you're thinking it real hard on the inside in your mouth. You, know, you, you mouth the words, but, but nothing comes out. That's what she was doing. So Eli, this priest, looks at her, sees her doing that, and thinks she's drunk. He goes over, talks to her, realizes she's not drunk. That we're told, she tells him she's, she's been pouring her heart out to God. And in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, verse 17, Eli says to her, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Go in peace. God's going to answer your prayer. And at the end of the next verse, her face was no longer sad. So she's pouring her heart out to God. And this, this man of God says to her, go in peace. God's going to answer your prayer. You're going to have a child. And she's happy. And I share that to lay the, the foundation for the first lesson about life we learn from Eli and his flaws, his failures. Because here's what I want you to get. Eli was not a bad man. Eli had a good heart. He was kind to her. <clears throat> he blessed her. He wanted her prayer to be answered. And you're going to see in this story today, more than once, Eli had a good heart. Not a cruel man. He was not an evil man. Uh, he didn't go out and do a lot of bad stuff. He was a good man, a good, good heart. But here's the first lesson we learned from Eli. You ready? You want to write this down? Having a good heart, good intentions, alone are not enough. It's not enough just to have a good heart. It's not enough just to have good intentions. You see, in our culture today, everybody thinks, well, if you are just sincere, that's all it takes. You're sincere. He's got a good heart. She has a good heart. And, and those matter. Those are important. They're foundational. God doesn't honor anything we do if we don't have a good heart and good intentions. But takes more. Having a good heart and having good intentions doesn't cut it. It's not enough. 
You move over to chapter 2, we learn some more about Eli. So let's look at his story and why I'm saying that. In chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, God says of, about Eli's sons, he had two boys, uh, Phineas and Hophni. And in verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now, wow. How would you like it if God came to you and said, your sons and your grandkids, they're worthless. That's how bad they are. That's the situation with Eli's boys. It says at the end of verse 12, they did not know the Lord. Now, here's what they were doing. Remember, Eli is a descendant of Aaron, the first priest of, of, of Israel, so he's the high priest. Well, their descendants served as priests. So Eli's boys are serving in the priesthood. And when people would come to Shiloh bringing their sacrifices, their offerings, his boys were so corrupt, they would go and by force, and you read about this in the rest of chapter 2, take some of the meat, whatever they wanted, they would take from the people coming there to worship and to offer sacrifice. They would take what they wanted for their own benefit. Now, the, the Old Testament laid out regulations for how the sacrifices were supposed to be made. And some of that sacrifice meat were give, was given to the priests for their support. That's how they, how they got their, their living. But they weren't doing that. They were taking anything and everything they wanted. They were abusing the people of God. They were enriching themselves by abusing God's people and in doing so disrespecting the offering, disrespecting God, disrespecting the sacrifice. You drop down in chapter 2, verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. When someone steals from God's people, they're stealing from God. When you abuse God's people, you're abusing God. They were, they were not only despising God's people, they were despising the sacrifice and God himself. And so their dad, Eli, the high priest, hears about this, and he's going to confront them. In verse 22, Eli was very old, heard all his sons were doing. And now at the end of verse 22, part of what he heard was that they were laying with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now, you need to get this picture. So here's these sons of Eli. They are priests. Okay, they're priests. They're abusing God's people, stealing from God's people disrespecting God and, his, and the sacrifices, and they are sexually immoral, sleeping with women at the tabernacle. be like sleeping with a woman at the church. I mean, no wonder God said they're worthless. They're worthless. And, and they're the priest. Eli hears about this. So here he is, he's the head priest, he's the high priest. He hears about what his sons are doing, their great sin, and he confronts them. And, and in verse 23, he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear. Why, why are you doing that? In, in verse 25, it says they would not listen to the voice of their father. So he confronts them, they don't care. They're not going to change. They're going to keep doing it. And Eli let it go. He just dropped it. Even though he had the authority and the responsibility to remove them as priest 
so they could no longer abuse the people of God, no longer disrespect God, and no longer serve in leadership while they were so corrupt and so immoral. He could have fixed it all. Even if they wouldn't change, he had the ability, the power, and the responsibility to remove them as high priest from that role. And he didn't do it. He knew what was right. He knew what they were doing was wrong. He confronted them. And then he let it go. It didn't change anything. His heart was right. Had good intentions. Wanted his boys to do what was right. But when he could have stopped it, even, even if they wouldn't change, he still could have stopped it. He allowed the people of God to keep being hurt by his abusive sons. And so what does God do? God raises up a man of God, a prophet, and sends him to Eli. And so this prophet comes to Eli, the high priest, in chapter 2, and in, in uh, verses 28 and 29, confronts Eli. God, through the prophet, confronts Eli and says to him in verse 29, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering? Now, Eli was not the one abusing the sacrifice. His boys were. But God says, Eli, because you have the power to stop it and you won't do it, it's the same as if you were doing it. And then God takes it a little further and says to Eli, because you honor your sons above me. You honor your sons above me, God says through the prophet. In other words, Eli, you care more about what your sons want than what I want. Eli, you'd rather your sons like you than I like you. You'd, you'd rather cater to your sons than do what's right. And in so doing, you're disrespecting me, you're disrespecting the people, and you're disrespecting the offering because you let your sons keep doing this. And, and then God, through the prophet, tells Eli, Eli, my judgment on you and your family because of all this is... Your, your, your descendants, your heirs are not going to live to be old people. And your descendants one day will no longer be allowed to serve as priest. I'm going to raise up someone else who's better to take their place. And I'm judging you and your family and your future heirs by removing all of your future heirs eventually from this ministry. And they're all going to die young. Not going to live to be old people. Because you wouldn't do anything when you had the power to do something to fix what was wrong and what was hurting people. Now, you know what's interesting? Go back to Hannah, that woman this story started with, who comes to the tabernacle to pray because she really wants a baby. Well, you read in, in, in chapter 3, all right, Hannah is pregnant. She gives birth to a little boy, and she names him Samuel. Samuel is going to grow up to be a prophet, grow up to be the priest who takes Eli's place, takes the place of Eli's sons. 
First and second Samuel are named after him in your Bible. When Eli, when, when, when Samuel rather is a certain age and, and, and Hannah wings him, she takes him to the tabernacle and dedicates him to God and Eli actually raises Samuel. Think about this. He's raising the very man who's going to take his place, the one God's raising up to take the place of his sons as priest. And Eli was good to Samuel. He was good to Hannah. He was good to Samuel. Did a great job mentoring him. And when Eli, when, when Samuel rather is a teenager, one night trying to sleep, God speaks to, Sam, to, to Samuel. Calls him, tells him he's going to be a priest. Tells he, God explains to Samuel that he's going to take the place of Eli and his sons. And explains to Samuel that God is judging Eli and his household. Next morning, Samuel wakes up. Eli says, hey, tell me, what did God say to you? And he presses him and he presses him. And in chapter 3 and verse 18, Samuel told him, told Eli everything, everything God had shown him, hid nothing from him. And then he, Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli accepted the judgment of God. Didn't argue with God. Didn't make excuses. Didn't blame anybody. He accepted it. Because he knew he had failed. He knew his sons were corrupt. He knew that he and his sons had brought this on themselves. It wasn't anybody else's fault. They did it to themselves. And it's amazing to me how many times we, we make a mess of life. We make a mess of relationships. We make a, a mess of our relationship with God and, and, and then bad stuff happens and we get mad at God. God, why'd you do this? God, why'd you let this happen? When we're the very ones who caused it in the first place. Eli was smart enough not to do that because he realized there was nobody to blame but him and his boys. Wasn't God. They deserved what they were getting. They brought it on themselves. And so you see Eli, this, this, this guy whose heart was good, he, he knew the truth. He was to blame his sons. He didn't blame God. His heart was good. He was good to Samuel, even though he knew Samuel was going to take his place. Still good to Samuel. Raised him well. Trained him. Mentored him well. He was good to Hannah. But that's the point. Having a good heart and having good attentions, if that's all you have, it's not enough. You need those. They matter. You're not going to do anything great in the eyes of God without a good heart and without good intentions. But you can't stop there. There's more to it. And that kind of just flows naturally into the second lesson. If the first lesson is having a good heart and good intentions, not enough. Second lesson is this. There are going to be times in life... There will be times in your life and in my life when we have to do what is both right and hard. Do what is both right and hard. Eli knew the right thing. That's why he confronted his sons. When they would not change, they would not repent. 
the right thing to do at that point was to remove them from their roles. And he had the ability to do that and the responsibility to do that. But that was the hard thing. And he didn't do it. Now, as a dad and a grandfather, I can kind of understand that. You don't want to hurt your kids. They would have been mad. Would have negatively impacted their livelihood because they were, so to speak, enriching themselves by abusing the people of God. And he, 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 he didn't want to do that. So he's passive. Didn't make any changes. Didn't do anything. Sometimes, when you're, you're good heart and you're good intentions and you know what needs to be done and you know what's right, there are those moments in life when you have to do what's right, even if it's hard. And if you're never willing to do the hard stuff, just look in the mirror because nobody else is to blame. The right thing sometimes takes strength, not weakness. Takes action, not being passive. I mean, if we keep doing the same stuff, why do we expect the future to be different? Historians and others talk about hinge moments. You know, doors... Doors swing on a hinge. They open and close. There are moments in all our lives that are hinge moments. When we make decisions. When we take action. When we fail to decide. When we fail to act. And those are hinge moments. And the door of your life is going to swing one direction or the other future the future your journey going forward is shaped by those hinge moments and what do you do or not do decide or not decide when those big moments and those little moments moments of all sizes come because every hinge moment matters and when that hinge moment of dealing with his sons and their abuse of God's people came Eli was a coward. And he didn't act. He was passive. And that's when the judgment came. That's when the future die was cast. There's a third lesson. Failure to change leads to more failure. Failure to change when change is needed leads to more failure. I mean, it never makes things better, does it? Failure to change when change is needed leads to more failure. The story continues over in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. The Jewish nation is at war with the Philistines. Seems like they were always at war with the Philistines. So they're at war with the Philistines, and it's going badly. In fact, in verse 2, it says that uh, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. 
And about 4,000 of their soldiers died in battle. So it's a, a military calamity. And the army and others all rush from the front to Shiloh where Eli is living and where the tabernacle and inside the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant is located. And they all rush there. And Eli's two sons, these corrupt, immoral, worthless sons who were priests, enter the tabernacle and they carry out the Ark of the Covenant. Moses' Ten Commandments are in that ark. And they carry that out. And and the army and these two sons with that ark go back into battle again against the Philistines thinking somehow because they have the ark of the covenant, God is magically going to let them win the war. And it doesn't work. They lose again and thousands more soldiers die. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines and carried to a Philistine city. Eli's two sons are killed in battle. And sometimes everything's a mess. We've got all these problems, all these challenges. And we've been ignoring God. We've been ignoring church. And we think, you know, I need to go to church. We come to church. And if we're not careful, sometimes we come to church thinking, you know, well, all right, God, you're magic. I showed up today. Fix it. And you need to be here. And I'm glad you're here. But you do understand that just being here doesn't change things in your life, Right? Change changes things. Repentance and brokenness for the sin and the wrong decisions and wrong actions. Confession so God will forgive. Submission and surrender to the Lordship of Christ and loving Him and serving Him and obeying Him and following Him. There's nothing magical about walking into this building or any other church building that says, poof, God's just going to fix you. When you get your life right, your heart right, your relationship right with him, then he begins to change things in your life. And when you get yourself right with God, guess what? You change. You become a different person. You start living differently, thinking differently, acting differently, deciding differently, and that changes your life. Well, toward the end of chapter 4, about a verse 11, 12, a man runs to Shiloh and reports everything to, to Eli. Philistines defeated the Israelis again. His two boys are dead. The Philistines captured the ark and it's now in their country. And Eli's 98 years old, old man. And he's fat, sitting on a stool of some kind. And when he hears all that news, he becomes so emotionally distraught or whatever that he loses his balance and he falls over, breaks his neck, and he dies. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, his son, 
is pregnant. It's about time for birth. When she discovers, when she hears that her husband is dead, her father-in-law is dead, the army's lost and the ark is being captured, the stress of it throws her into labor. She gives birth to, to a little boy. And, and shortly after giving birth, she dies. But before she dies, at the end of chapter 4, she names her boy Ichabod. Ichabod, which means the glory of God is gone, it's departed. She named her boy Ichabod, saying, God's glory is no longer in Israel, no longer with the army, no longer with my family. God's glory is gone. And can you imagine that little boy? Every day growing up, for the rest of his life, his name would remind him of the failure of his father and grandfather. His name would remind him that his family was the reason God's glory was gone from the nation of Israel for that season. Can you imagine? And the point is, when we don't change when it's needed, it just leads to more failure. I mean, why do we really think things will be different in the future if we don't change anything today? Hmm? And what kind of logic is that? I'm going to keep doing what I've always been doing, keep doing what I am doing, but yeah, the future is going to be better. Really? You believe that? Really? Have you ever wondered why God nudges us to change things? Huh? You're in church like you are today. You're watching something on television. You're reading the Bible. You're reading a book. You're out on the lake and you're thinking. You're in your deer stand and you're thinking. And it's like God just nudges you. Okay? I could spiritualize it and say, God is talking to you. But let me just make it human. God nudges you and says, hey, wake up, son. Now, you know, God nudges you about some changes. God nudges you about some things that need to be different, right? You ever wonder why God does that? Hey, parents, why do you nudge your kids to do what's right? Come on, parents, why? Why? Because you love them. You don't want them to get in trouble. You want them to have a good life. So you nudge your kids all the time to do what's better and what's right. Well, God loves you. He nudges you. See, if God didn't care about you, he'd leave you alone. God didn't care about you. He'd just let you keep right on trucking. But because God loves you, he nudges you. And now the ball's in your court. Just like it's in your kid's court when you nudge them. Guess what? It's in your court now when God nudges you. What are you going to do? And here's the fourth point. And this is the good one. Okay, this is the positive, positive lesson. Changing while there's time to change creates a different future. Aren't you thankful for that? 
Changing while there's time to change creates a different future. Some of you Twitter people need to tweet that out. Changing while there's time to change creates a different future. Just like failing to change will just lead to more failure. Now, I want us to play the what if game. Eli didn't change, his sons didn't change. But what if? Let's just pretend, let's imagine Eli had changed. Eli goes to his sons and he confronts them. Tells them what they're doing is wrong and it's evil and they're but they they won't listen to dad, they won't change, they refuse. Because all of us know as parents, you really don't have control over ultimately what your kids decide to be when they grow up, right? They're gonna do what they're gonna do. You can influence them, but you can't control it. So Eli couldn't control his boys. And let's say his boys said, Dad, we don't care. We're, we like this. We're having fun. We're not changing. But what if in that moment, instead of doing nothing, Eli had been the man of God he was supposed to be, exercised the authority that was his, handled the responsibility that was his, and said, Sons, I love you. And I'm going to be here for you and help you. But you can't be priest any longer. I'm removing you from this role because you can no longer, I can no longer allow you to keep abusing the people of God. I can no longer allow you to keep stealing from the people of God. I can no longer allow you to be a priest and and bring such shame on God. What if Eli had done what he was supposed to do? I don't know if his boys ever would have repented and got right with God. I don't know. But based on my understanding of Scripture, I'm pretty sure if if Eli had done that, God would not have judged Eli. Because Eli would have done what was right. And God doesn't judge you when you do what's right. I want you to notice in the story, God did not send the prophet of God to announce judgment until Eli had confronted his sons and then chosen to do nothing about it. God did not tell Samuel that uh, Eli's family had been judged until after Eli confronted his sons and then refused to exercise his authority and remove them. The judgment only came to Eli after he sort of washed his hands of it. But what if Eli had changed? What if Eli had done what was right? I don't think God would have judged him. Recently, Steve and Brenda Polk were out in Colorado and they visited the, uh, the U.S. Olympic Training Center. You see a couple of pictures Brenda put on, on, on Instagram while they were there. <clears throat> I didn't put the pic- picture up. They, there's a sign. There's a sign there at the uh, Olympic Training Facility. And here's what it says. And listen to this. Here's what the sign says. This is a quote. The key is not the will to win. The key is not the will to win. Everyone has that. Everybody wants things to be better. Everybody wants everything to turn out okay. The sign goes on to say, it is the key. The key. It is the will 
to prepare to win that is important. It is the will to prepare to win that is important. This is October, people watching football. Well, you know, the teams that are stronger are stronger because in the winter, spring, and summer, that's when they get strong, lifting weights, conditioning drills. If you don't do that in the winter, spring, and summer, you don't do the strengthening, you don't do the conditioning drills, guess what? In October, you're not winning. You don't win just because you want to. You don't get better just because you want to. Good intentions, good heart, not enough. When God nudges, that's, he's nudging us to get strong. He's nudging us to get ready. He's nudging us to victory and to success. And we have to listen and we have to respond and we have to obey and we have to act when God nudges us. So let me ask you a question as I wrap this up. What is God? What, what is God? What has God been nudging you to change? What's, what has God been nudging you to begin doing? Nudging you to stop doing it? And how long has God been nudging you in that direction? How long? And if God's been nudging you, why haven't you changed? You want it to be different, then why aren't you doing anything to make it different? Let me ask it a different way. What is one thing in your life, one thing, you could change that would make a positive difference in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your career, in your walk with Jesus Christ, in your spiritual growth and development? What is that one thing? And will you do it? That one change that you need to start, that one change that you need to stop, God's nudging, will you do it?